Church, if you all do your part on Monday night, that's what I'm asking you for. It's going to be cold. You're going to be just fine. If you will join with me and caucus, I promise you our best days are yet to come. If you're willing to brave the cold for a few hours for the Iowa caucus, I'll be spending the next eight years fighting for you. We will make America great again. Thank you very much, Iowa. Thank you. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. For the first time in the Republican race for the White House, it's voters whose voices will be loudest tonight. I'm Patricia Murphy in the deep freeze of the Hawkeye State as Iowans head to the first in the nation caucuses. I'm Tia Mitchell, also live in Iowa as Donald Trump continues to hold a commanding lead in the polls. But back in Georgia, I have new analysis of the Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock. I'm Greg Bluestein, also here in Georgia. Fonnie Willis answers accusations that she's had an improper relationship with the man she hired as her special prosecutor in the Donald Trump case. And across the state and the nation, people celebrate the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Tonight is the Iowa caucuses. You heard Vivek Ramaswamy, you heard Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, and Donald Trump as they rally voters to turn out in sub-zero temperatures uh, to the caucuses uh, tonight. This is also Dr. Martin Luther King Day, a day that uh, across the country, but especially I think here in Georgia, we have the chance to celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and we'll talk about that a little bit later in today's program. Um, I'm here in the studio with Greg Bluestein. Greg, we're nice and warm and cozy here in Atlanta while our colleagues, Stia Mitchell and Patricia Murphy, are still in Iowa where they're braving those sub-zero temperatures. If you haven't followed them on social media, now is your chance because they've been posting not just nonstop stories and coverage from a Georgia lens of Iowa, but also great videos of how cold yeah, it is and yeah, it's, combing it's, icicles out of it, there. It's been terrific. In just a couple minutes, we're going to be joined by a political veteran, Rick Dent, who's been a consultant, who has been an advisor to governors in three states in the South. And Rick is going to join us in just a couple of minutes. But before we get to all of that, let's hear from you, Tia, and you, Patricia. You both spent the weekend covering Iowans and the candidates. Uh, Tia, just give us a little... A taste of what you observed and what you think was important about what you saw. It is it is cold. I know that's been kind of the big under um, undercurrent of everything that's happening here. And it's not just us journalists not used to the cold belly aching, although that is definitely happening. But <laughs> it does have real effects on these caucus meetings. It's Unsee- it's cold even by Iowa standards. This is record cold. This is not just below freezing. We're talking about sub-zero 
as the high today, as the high below zero. So it's going to affect turnout. It's going to affect concerns about getting people in and out of these precincts safely. Um, and it's, it, it is truly something to behold the fact that even by Iowa standards, this is um, just something that doesn't happen very often and for it to coincide with such a big, big day. Patricia, I have to say one of my favorite sound bites over the weekend was Nikki Haley uh, being the mom that she is, telling her caucus goers, be sure you wear layers Monday night. Uh, tell us about your weekend in uh, Iowa. Yeah, so I've had a chance to get out to see uh, Donald Trump at a rally, Nikki Haley at her rally last night in Adel, Iowa, and um, Ron DeSantis in West Des Moines. And so I've been able to compare the three of those based on, um, you know, you can't take these things to the bank, but crowd size, certainly crowd enthusiasm, and um, just the, the messages and the responses that I get from uh, caucus goers who are there seeing these candidates. Um, the Trump crowd is huge, enthusiastic. There's an overflow room. And these are people who have voted for him twice now. This will be their third time. Um, also, because Trump has been campaigning in Iowa for 11 years, he has a huge organization. Uh, he's got caucus captains, multiple caucus captains at caucus sites. Um, and that is uh, is different from somebody like Nikki Haley, who has volunteers coming in from other states to be speaking at caucuses in some cases. Um, I went to her event last night. A lot of independent voters and even Democratic voters thinking about caucusing for Nikki Haley. You can register as a Republican at the caucus site. And um, a number of people I spoke with last night wanted to do anything that could to keep Trump out of the White House one more time. And then Ron DeSantis was not quite as much on life support as I thought he would be. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the media has him already uh, dead as a doornail. Um, but there were people there who had been Trump supporters in the past and felt like they um, wanted somebody similar to Trump, but different. A lot of them have problems with his, um, with, they always say, you know, I don't like what he says, but I like what he does. And maybe Ron DeSantis will be that kind of that sweet spot. Um, and then the last point to the weather. Um, yes, today it was 13 below this morning in Des Moines. Um, that's not the windshield. That is the actual temperature. The reason that's relevant is when you get out outside of Des Moines and its suburbs in rural areas where I was yesterday, the, those roads are not plowed. Um, it is very icy. And so these caucuses start at seven o'clock at night. It's already dark by then. So if you're an older caucus goer in a rural area, you're going to need some help getting there. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be the thing to watch, Rick Dent. But I want to pick up on something that um, Patricia pointed out. Um, she said that she's seeing more signs of life for Ron DeSantis than many of people in the media have uh, 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 suggested. And, you know, Ann Selzer is the basically renowned pollster for the Iowa poll. And although her final poll before tonight shows DeSantis in third place, she said that underlying the horse race numbers, she's seeing there are signs that DeSantis might do better than people expect. Uh, but Rick, give us a general sense of what you're going to be watching tonight. Well, you know, I think everybody knows it's, it's going to be a turnout game in Iowa and 
you know, the weather, the weather, the weather, who is that going to impact? Will it impact older voters the most who are probably more at risk at getting out? They're the ones who usually vote the most. So if they don't come out, who does that hurt? What about young voters? Young voters everywhere are never engaged. So are they going to come out now in, in this kind of environment? And then what impact will this have on Trump and his supporters? I think everyone knows he's going to win this going away. But the real question is, if I'm a Trump voter sitting by my fire, and I know for a fact he's going to win by 20 or 30 points, I got to be thinking to myself, do I really want to go out? Does my vote really count today? So it's going to be really interesting to see who shows up. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's to Rick's point. It's so hard to poll, you know, your average election, but polling a caucus in Iowa when you have this sort of temperature is even harder. And something that Ann Seltzer also said about this Iowa poll that reminds her of 2016 when Trump led the final that the the her final Iowa poll. But Ted Cruz ended up pulling out a victory. So anything can happen. But Patricia, I'm curious, you've been out there not just seeing the candidates, but talking to voters. How and, you know, with the grain of salt that we know that people going to these rallies are already, you know, very enthusiastic anyway, if they're showing up to weekend rallies. But what is the sense on the ground from voters you talk to? Or do you sense a a sort of enthusiasm to actually go into these sub-zero temperatures and caucus for hours tonight? Yeah, you know, you get it the strongest from the Trump voters. Um, They, he is more, it feels like he's more popular here by an order of magnitude. I mean, it's not really comparable. And um, the question, it really is, you know, everyone's calling it a race for second place. And I think that's true. And um, the weather, you know, sort of the, the, Cozy by the fire test works just the same for the DeSantis and Haley voters. I'm cozy by the fire. Trump's going to win this thing. I don't know. Do I really want to go? You know, these are, there's just no way to predict it. And at this point, the only unpredictable thing is how the weather is going to affect people. It really feels like we know Trump is dominant here right now. Um, We know it's going to be cold. And the only question is, what does that really look like on the ground? And then between Haley and DeSantis, who comes out of Iowa with the momentum going into New Hampshire and South Carolina? It it feels like Haley, now that she's sort of polling a little higher than DeSantis, kind of feels like she needs to come in second place. Mm. Like expectations have grown for her over the last week. Um, the expectation is that she could do well in New Hampshire, very well in New Hampshire. Um, and then South Carolina is right there. She's it, it, She cannot come in third place tonight, I think, and have people feel like this was what they thought they were going to see. Rick, and then Tia? It's really interesting because tonight is really two races. The first race is Trump versus Trump and his expectations. Don't think that if he doesn't win by 30 or 25, that that's not going to hurt him if he doesn't hit 50% like some people are thinking. So it's Trump versus Trump. And then, as Patricia said, the second race is DeSantis and Haley. And I hope this is true. I saw a quote from Donald Trump, and I do hope he said this. (laughs) According to what I read, he said to his supporters, even if you vote and pass away, it will be worth it. <laughs> I, don't know. Uh, I was there, and yes, he said it. He sure, <laughs> he sure did. He spoke for almost two hours. But listen, 
nobody nobody filed out. Those voters stayed for two hours listening to that. <laughs> and that barely caught my attention compared to the rest of the stuff that he was saying. So, um, uh, y- yes, he said it and he meant it. <laughs> Tia, jump in. <laughs> yeah, I was going to I agree with Rick that <clears throat> that 50 percent is a threshold that Trump needs to reach in order for people to believe his narrative that his eventual nomination is inevitable. Um, Because if he's below 50%, all those who want to coalesce that non-Trump contingent will be empowered because they'll say, hey, if we can get down to one candidate, maybe maybe we can really go toe-to-toe with him. That's the other thing. Depending on, again, we, we expect Trump to end first. And let's say that happens. The question is, who's in second and how far away second and third are from each other? If the if Haley and DeSantis in second and third, the way a lot of the polling predicts, but if one is way ahead of the other, that third place person is going to face a lot of pressure to start winding things up. Um, but if they're very close, Within, you know, a a few percentage points, I don't think either would be incentivized to bow out before, you know, trying again in New Hampshire and probably South Carolina. Yeah. Nikki Haley and DeSantis are already doing what you'd expect someone who is not going to finish in first to do, which is lowering expectations. Haley sent out an email blast to her supporters this morning saying, will Trump win Iowa by 60 points? Doubtful. So she's basically saying, hey, you know, I'll, I'll lose but I'm not going to lose by 60 points, which is, which is saying something. But Tia, my question back to you is about DeSantis because, you know, a third place finish for him, you know, it's not a knockout blow, but still it's not great for someone who has spent so much time, resources, tens of millions of dollars between him and his super PAC and, and other, other supporters have been spent on these early contests. His chances in New Hampshire next week might not be better. He's already outlined plans to head right to South Carolina to compete in Nikki Haley's backyard. So, you know, DeSantis third place won't be great. Right. And again, if it's a, if it's a, if it's DeSantis and Haley, like, you know, one or two percentage points, I think it's not great, but he'll he'll still have more to run on than if Nikki Haley beats him by five or 10 percentage points. Because, again, you look at New Hampshire, DeSantis really hasn't played ball much in New Hampshire. He said he's going, but it is telling to your point, Greg, he's going to South Carolina first. He's leaving Iowa and going to South Carolina first then to New Hampshire. Um, And Ron DeSantis, the other thing that I think people have to be honest about is should DeSantis bow out? Most of his people or a good chunk of his people are not going to go to Haley. They're going to go back to Trump. Um, And Trump knows this, which is why he wants DeSantis out. Um, it quite frankly might be some incentive for Ron DeS- for Nikki Haley not to want Ron DeSantis out because it's probably going to benefit Trump. Um, the other thing is Ron DeSantis is still a governor. The Florida legislature <laughs> went back into session last week. Um, he's supposedly supposed to be running a state. Um, and so I think he has to factor that in as well. So, uh, Rick, I want to go to your two races, Trump versus Trump, and then the uh, Haley versus DeSantis, and ask you basically a combined question. Number one, 
come on. If if Donald Trump gets 45 percent of the vote and beats either, you know, Haley or DeSantis for second by the widest margin ever in an Iowa caucus, do you really believe he's underperformed and will therefore seem somewhat vulnerable in the Trump versus Trump uh, 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 battle? And then uh, it's a part of that combined question. If DeSantis does finish third, uh, the path forward for him, how realistic is it for him to uh, keep going to South Carolina, where even though it's Nikki Haley's state, Donald Trump has a commanding lead in all the polls? Well, first, DeSantis, I would think if he comes in third, he's the walking dead. You know, he can keep going, but he, he's going to look like those zombies <laughs> walking dead. Um, I'm not in any way trying to say that Trump is vulnerable. Uh, but you know the expectations game. You mentioned 45. Well, what if it's 40? You know, what if he only wins by 20? And, you know, the liberal media, what will they say? What, what will they do to try to undercut him as well? You know, I, Greg will understand this. Donald Trump is a lot like the Georgia Bulldogs. If they only beat somebody by 10 points, that fan base is insane. Oh, my God. The offensive coordinator has to go. The quarterback, the quarterback sucks. What? And, and they win 40 in a row. It's the same thing. It's about expectations. The, the other thing about DeSantis and, and Haley, you know, we're talking about a very small universe of voters. Just to put Iowa in perspective, and you hear this all the time. I went back and looked in 2016, 186,000 people voted in the Republican caucus. Brian Kemp got 2.1 million votes when he ran for governor last time. So we're talking about someone getting beat maybe for second and third by 2,000 votes. And all of a sudden, he's gone. His career is over. And Nikki Haley is the, you know... The next best thing. So, yes, I can see expectations getting out of hand for both. Patricia, why don't you jump back in? So I think what I've noticed um, talking to the Trump campaign is how much their organization is pre-planned. They have... Again, because he he has a huge advantage having already run twice before, he has data and names and addresses for hundreds of thousands of Iowa voters. Um, That's going to be the same in uh, New Hampshire. It's going to be the same in South Carolina. Um, He has an organization. He has a very... Uh, disciplined campaign, even though he has a very undisciplined everything else. And I think that's hugely important. Um, He also, their goal is very clearly to try and blow these early contests out of the water so that he starts to seem and look and potentially be the, um, the presumptive nominee before he really starts to get wrapped up into these court trials that are going to start the day after Super Tuesday. And a very quick note, a Georgia note about Trump's organization in Iowa his one of his head delegate, one of his head operators in Iowa is Brian Jack, who is a Georgia native, who is likely going to run for third district Congress in in Georgia right after this campaign, right after Iowa wraps up. Well, Greg, I'm glad you mentioned uh, uh, Georgians who are involved in the Iowa caucuses because uh, we're going to take a break right now. But when we come back, one of the things that uh, we know uh, Tia and Patricia have been doing is kind of keeping track of the Georgians who have gone up to Iowa to work as surrogates for their preferred candidates. We'll do that and ask them also where they're going to be watching the caucus uh, that they choose tonight. 
This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. Greg Bluestein is with me here in the studio. Uh, political consultant, analyst Rick Dent is joining us. He's also in Atlanta right now. Batia Mitchell and Patricia Murphy are in the colds of Iowa. Patricia, um, you were in, the, in Indianola to see, isn't that where the, I think that's where the Trump rally took place, right? And um, uh-huh. we know that Mike Collins, uh, uh, Congressman Mike Collins was there as well. Let's listen to what he said about that rally. You know, if people are standing in line for hours and hours today in weather like this to see President Trump, I mean, that, that's a resounding endorsement in itself. And so, you know, we can take a good, solid win out of here and, and move that into New Hampshire, South Carolina. And I think it's, it's, it's just done by that. And uh, we can go ahead and start getting into a general election season. So, so Tia, did, uh, did you uh, see Collins at Indianola? OK, then you go, please. Well, I I actually met him at his hotel at uh, one of the Trump campaign host hotels in downtown Des Moines. But we did have a chance to chat about him being on the ground. I don't I don't think he actually was in Indianola, but he had been meeting with volunteers, uh, phone banking for Trump. He's going to be assigned to one of the precincts tonight to speak on Trump's behalf. Of course, he, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andrew Clyde are with almost a dozen other members of Congress and people like Carrie Lake, and they're going to have a closing rally later this afternoon. So it does show the might of of all the people who are in Iowa for Trump. Let's compare that to Ron DeSantis. Only five members of Congress out of the roughly 220, you know, they've lost a few, but we're going to go with the number 220 House Republicans. Five of them have endorsed Ron DeSantis. The vast majority of those 220 either haven't said anything or are behind Trump. Uh, But I did catch up with one of the five, who's Representative Rich McCormick. And we went out door knocking with him yesterday, me and AJC photographer Yusuf Shin. And I'm going to call people by name because we were out in the freezing cold (laughs) um, with Rich McCormick knocking on doors. He actually, one of the houses he visited, there was a couple and they told Rich McCormick they were leaning towards Nikki Haley, but they invited him in, you know, Iowa uh, residents are used to kind of the attention um, heading into the caucuses. So when Rich McCormick knocked on their door, they invited him in. They had a conversation for a few minutes. And when they emerged, Rich McCormick says, I flipped the vote. They're going to support DeSantis now. About, okay, Patricia, uh, which surrogates from Georgia have you had a chance to see? 
So I'm going to be going over later today to see Representative Scott Hilton, who is in Cedar Rapids. It's about two hours east of Des Moines. Um, he's in Cedar Rapids with a group of other Georgians. They have already been door knocking. They even had the very Iowa experience yesterday of getting snuck and stuck in the snow and pulled out by a tractor, which I thought was really <laughs> on brand for Iowa. Um, and then I'll be going to a caucus near there in Mason, Iowa later tonight. That is one of the more rural areas. And if anywhere is going to be impacted by the weather, um, it's a place like Mason, Iowa. So I wanted to have a chance to see how it might uh, change or affect anybody who was planning to come out, anybody they were expecting to see who wasn't able to make it. Uh, Also, a number of these campaigns have their caucus captains planning to drive to go pick up some of their supporters if they can't get out and come caucus. Um, There's no such thing as early voting out here for a caucus. You have to be there physically, um, get there and back. And so that's what I'm going to go do. I'm sorry, Greg, we we know that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been one of the top surrogates for Trump. She's at all of the rallies all over the country, certainly in Iowa right now. And you've got to imagine she's putting her stake in the ground for some job in what she hopes is a Trump administration, perhaps even as a candidate for vice president, at least in her own imaginings. And she said her dream job with the Trump cabinet would be DHS secretary. So so watch out uh, for that development if, if Trump ends up winning the, the presidency, which is a long way out. Uh, but certainly she'll be talked as, as a as a as a potential running mate. She's also looked at a potential 2026 statewide run in Georgia. Who knows? But we know that she's out, not only is she building, you know, helping Trump, but she's also trying to build her own national brand. We've seen her in Iowa multiple times before this. I wouldn't be surprised to see her in New Hampshire. We'll certainly see her in South Carolina. But Patricia, I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, there's always this debate about whether surrogates matter at all. But in a place like Iowa, they do because you need you need people from each campaign at each individual caucus site. And there's hundreds. What is there? 800 throughout the state in all 99 counties. So you need, you know, each of these 1600, camp- Greg, 1657, 1657. There you go. So you need the the, the campaigns is this organ, a massive organizational effort from these campaigns just to get people to each of these caucus sites. Yeah, it's very, very, very labor intensive. And that's why the candidates with the best uh, grassroots support are most likely to have the best grassroots organization because you need all of those people, not just to come out and caucus for you, which is really an extroverts um, experience. Mm -hmm. You have to go out there and like stand in the corner of whomever you're supporting. Um, These caucus captains stand up and speak on behalf of their candidates. The Trump campaign, again, to get back to their organization, they're going to have multiple caucus captains at some of these precincts. Um, They're also, they've given them talking points, things they could say if they want to. Um, They've just really prepared them. They're not leaving a whole lot to chance. And that's something that is is very difficult to miss when you see what's going on on the ground. Uh, Rick and then Teal, let me let me come to you first on this, Rick. Um, the the Trump surrogates up there, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and others, they're going to come back. They'll eventually be in Georgia, working on behalf of Donald Trump. So they're honing uh, their messages. But the fact of the matter is that uh, Georgia doesn't vote until March twelfth, and if Donald Trump is as successful as he hopes he will be by then. Uh, at least in the primaries, the Republican primary contest, Georgia may be completely irrelevant. Yeah, I, yeah. I, again, I, I'm not in any way suggesting that Donald Trump is is weak at at all. 
Um, I think by the time they get to Georgia, yes, this thing is going to be over. Um, you've heard me say on countless occasions, the only way, the only chance anybody has of beating Donald Trump is by, um, um, sorry, my phone is ringing at the same time. The only chance anybody has of beating Trump is one-on-one. A multi-candidate race, you cannot beat the man. He's got too many core constituents. So the quicker someone can eliminate everyone else and get him one-on-one, then maybe, maybe you have a chance. But it's going to be slim and none. Because look, what what his his supporters are going to come out regardless. Doesn't matter what the weather is because they want to send a message. I'm a I'm an Alabama kid. I saw George Wallace. His message was send them a message. And I think the Trump people want to have a giant middle finger to the rest of America to say, "This is our man, and we're back." Kia. Yeah, I I and I think. That's what Donald Trump has been projecting. I think it was Patricia's dispatch from Indianola yesterday was so interesting because two 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 notes that I found interesting. Number one, he's got these white hats that all the caucus chairs and Trump won one. So they're kind of replacing the red MAGA hats with the white hats, at least for Iowa. I found that was an interesting detail. But also, Patricia, you said he talked for two hours and not about local issues, not about things that Iowa cares about, agriculture or, you know, the endorsements from locally elected officials. It's like the same two hour full of conspiracy theories and grievances that he would give in Nevada or Georgia. And I think that also says a lot about politics today, but the people there ate it up. Right. Right. Patricia. Yeah. You know, he actually, because he spoke for two hours almost, um, he had time to, to, to do both really. So he talked about, Fannie Willis. He talked about what he called all the witch hunts against him. He went on at length about the Justice Department, the FBI. They're all against me, so they're all against you. They're out to get you. Um, but he he did actually talk about Iowa issues. Uh, specifically, he talks about a $28 billion payout that he got for Iowa farmers um, when there was a dispute, a trade dispute with China. And uh, that was something that his campaign had planned ahead when he was president after 20. 16. Um, it was something they thought would eventually do them a lot of good in Iowa when he was running for re-election in 2020. It didn't do him enough good to win the White House, but it's something that when I was talking to voters there and elsewhere, they said, well, I said, well, what do you like about Trump? They said, well, I like that gas prices were much lower. There were a number of truck drivers there as well as farmers. Um, and many of them use diesel fuel, the cost of diesel under Joe Biden. It's just all they think about how much it changes their bottom line. And then also many of them mentioned that uh, $28 billion figure. He said well, that he's just done so much for Iowans and he really made sure to remind them of that. And another show of Trump strength or at least confidence that rally in Indianola was the first in-person event of Donald Trump for the week in Iowa. He had, he had some tele rallies, but that was the first in-person event he had this week in Iowa where his rivals have been crisscrossing the straight state for a while. Um, T, I'm curious for you, this question for you, Patricia is a veteran of Iowa caucuses. She's been to a bunch. This is your first time uh, in Iowa for the caucus. <laughs> Other than the extreme cold, what's been the most, you would have been the most surprising takeaway from your experience there so far. 
Um, first of all, they've got some good food in Iowa, I must say. I haven't made it to <laughs> people always talk about the what's it called? Something pizza. Pizza ranch. Pizza ranch. Pizza ranch. Yeah. Pizza ranch and then zombie burger are like the two well known places. I haven't been to either one of those places yet. But I did go to this place. Yusuf and I um went with um Representative McCormick and actually Florida Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez were eating at it's called Mecha- Mechanic something. It's some well-known place called Mechanic mm-hmm. Barn or something. Machine shed? And machine shed. Yes, machine shed. Machine <laughs> shed. And the Mechanic you, Barn or the machine shed. Sorry, close. I was close enough. <laughs> and it was close. so good. It was very good. I went to this southern. So I have been eating despite the cold. Um, I'm very grateful for the skywalk that connects all the buildings downtown <laughs> so you don't have to go outside as much. Um I would say the other thing is just how it does seem like Iowa really relishes in this first in the nation status. It's such a big part of the state's identity. Um, about back in my day, they used to have a miniature golf tournament on the skywalks of Des Moines. I don't know if they continue to do that, but in the week before the caucuses, the candidates would often participate in that. The skywalks are really yeah. kind of an amazing network of indoor uh, walkways that go right through people's offices in some Things cases. we don't have to worry about in the land. That's exactly right. Rick, Dan, we're going to have to move on in a minute. But before we do, um, give us your final thoughts, because we're going to thank you and then move on to some other subjects. Um, just give us your final thoughts on what you'll be watching for tonight. And then, of course, we hope in the weeks and months ahead, you'll be back with us to continue helping us figure out what's going on with these races. Well, you know, again, kind of like where I started, we're going to be watching for two things. How strong is Donald Trump? And what, what do those numbers mean? I think, like I said, his voters are going to come out and it's going to be a giant, big middle finger to a lot of people. And um, there's not going to be any weakness at all. And then who's going to come in second? Um, that's going to be critical to both those campaigns. And it just seems like with... Nikki Haley looking like she may have some momentum in Iowa. She's doing much better in New Hampshire. This might be the end of DeSantis uh, today. All right. Rick Dent, thank you so much for joining us. And as I said, we really look forward to having you come back on Politically uh, George. Everybody else is going to stay right where you are. We have a lot more to talk about. Fonnie Willis makes her first defense in public of the allegations that she has had an inappropriate relationship with Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade. Um, Tia Mitchell has written a great profile of Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock, and we'll talk more about uh, what's happening tonight when Politically Georgia continues in just a moment. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited access for just 99 cents. 
You'll get all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigation, food and dining, and so much more at AJC.com. Plus, you'll have access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com start. That's AJC.com start. So you always know what's really going on. Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell continue with us from Iowa, where they're warm for the time being, but things will change when they have to get outside and start covering the candidates as they move forward. Uh, Greg, though, let's move from uh, what's happening in the election to uh, a huge story here. And that, of course, is uh, is the allegation uh, filed in a motion uh, by a, 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 an attorney for one of the uh, defendants in the conspiracy case. Um in which uh, it, she uh, alleges that Fonnie Willis has had an improper romantic relationship with Nathan Wade, that the money she's paying him has allowed her to go on lavish trips with him. We all know this story so far. Mm. But Fonnie Willis has said that she's not going to have a formal response to this until they file a motion in court themselves. But yesterday she's at Big Bethel Baptist Church, and she did for the first time uh, speak out about this, Greg. What did she say? Yeah, this was so important because of her silence over the last few days. And over a course of a 35-minute speech, she she delved into some of these claims. She pushed back on claims that she improperly hired Nathan Wade and suggested that racism was at the heart of the claims against her. Let's listen. I appointed three special counsel, as is my right to do. Paid them all the same hourly rate. They only attacked one I hired one white woman, a good personal friend and great boy, a superstar, I tell you. I hired one white man, brilliant, my friend, and a great boy. And I hired one black man, another superstar, a great friend, and a great boy. That's Fadi Willis talking about the the multiple people she hired. Um, Nathan Wade, who is black. Um, she said is a superstar, but she also said she had two other white special assistants on this trial who she hired who is not getting attacked. So she's saying that uh, racism is the heart of the claims against her. Tia, what do you make of uh, the remarks that she made uh, yesterday? That is, this is a racial matter as far as she's concerned. Um, I get why she's saying that, but I think... What still is glaring from those remarks, and I get that maybe she she didn't want to address this at the MLK church service, but what's glaring from the remarks is she still has not confirmed or denied the actual allegations. So the fact that people aren't taking issue with the other two special prosecutors is because she isn't accused of having an intimate relationship with those other two special prosecutors. I would dare say if she was accused of having an intimate relationship with either of the other two, it would be even more salacious. And I get it if it's not true. And I'm not saying it is true, but let's say the allegations turn out to not be true. Then, of course, there will be questions of, well, why did you just assume the black female prosecutor had a relationship with the black male special prosecutor? And, you know, people just kind of naturally put them together. So I do get her frustration, like two black people can't be colleagues. I get it. But at this point, I think she would be served well if she came out and addressed head on 
the allegations. Patricia, you wrote a very powerful column in which you essentially say, Fonnie Willis, what were you thinking? You say that very specifically, and then you say it's time for her to answer that question. Yeah, well, the the headline was actually, what are you thinking? Okay. Um, because it was uh, Judge Robert McBurney when he was uh, uh, making a really major decision in the Trump case to break off the Burt Jones piece of that investigation. Um, he said, this is just a what were you thinking moment because she had hosted a fundraiser for Burt Jones, political opponent. He said that the optics are just horrific. Um, so my column, what are you thinking, was really focused on the fact that she had not spoken out or addressed at all the allegations of this relationship. And she still hasn't, even after her lengthy speech um, at the AME church yesterday. And I think it, to Tia's point, I think it is really, um, it would do her a great, it would be a great benefit to her if she did address those one way or another. Democrats in the state capitol early last week were very spooked about the entire um, premise of the case against Trump because of this um, appearance of impropriety, um, the appearance of potential conflict, um, and the the failure to immediately address those concerns, even privately with Democrats, to say, look, there's nothing here, but I'm going to address it properly. Nobody had heard from her. And so it's really left uh, Fonnie Willis and the entire case exposed to a lot of innuendo when people really wanted that to be buttoned up tight. Patricia, uh, in his two hours <laughs> on the stage in Indianola yesterday, I, I don't know specifically, did Donald Trump uh, mention Fonnie Willis in that speech? He did. Yes, I did a piece yesterday on it because it just jumped out at me so squarely. He said that um, he said, you know, have you heard what's going on in Georgia? Have you heard what's going on with Fonnie Willis? Um, repeated in great detail a lot of the allegations against them and said, uh, I, he said, I just think it's going to be very hard for them to continue with this case. They just ought to drop this case. Um, and it was uh, he got a huge applause line. His uh, his base supporters there really completely agreed. I had also asked everybody I talked to ahead of that rally, you know, we have a case going on in Georgia. How, does that impact how you feel about Donald Trump? And to a person, they said, not at all. That is, uh, they said either those are trumped up charges was one phrase. Other people said, what are the chances that he would suddenly have 91 felonies against him and none before this? Oh, this is yeah. all, this is all a witch hunt. Um, I don't believe any of it. So he has really convinced his supporters that there is just no there there. And um, unfortunately for Fonnie Willis, uh, this situation with the allegations against her only compounds that impression with Republican voters. And Bill, here in Georgia, these allegations have had two distinct political fallout trends, I guess you'd call them. One, Patricia already mentioned, spooked is the perfect word. A number of Georgia Democrats we've talked to, um, most private, very few are willing to go public, but are saying essentially they're worried about this vacuum. They're worried even with, even after this response, even after the speech that she gave, the sermon she gave it at, uh, at Big Bethel on Sunday that she still hasn't head on directly addressed the allegations and uh, the salacious details of the allegations, as I say. But the second is a lot of more mainstream Republican figures who had even defended Fonnie Willis are now either unwilling to do so or they're raising their own concerns. And we heard from House Speaker John Burns on this air last week saying that he thinks now that the DA oversight panel, he would have no problem if they investigated Fonnie Willis now. 
Earlier, he said that you know she, there's no evidence of her doing any wrongdoing. And then we have also Governor Kemp over the weekend saying he is deeply troubled by these accusations. And of course, Kemp was the one who had that press conference back in August. It was a severe weather press conference that he t- turned in a surprise twist into one that focused on uh, defending Fannie Willis and saying there should be no special session to impeach her, that there should be no efforts to use that new law to punish her. We should point out um, two things. One, we have not seen from Ashley Merchant, the attorney who filed the motion about mm-hmm. all of this, we have not seen any definitive proof of an illicit relationship between Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade. It'll eventually come to light. She's been subpoenaed to uh, give a deposition in his very contentious divorce case. But I think the other thing we should also uh, point out is that you you said it. I mean, the speaker, the governor had said, we don't, we did never, this commission that we want to put it in power to o- oversee the work of DAs who are going astray, we never intended this to be one that would go after Fonnie Willis. They're not quite saying the same thing. You're at this exactly point. right. It, it, you know, the examples that came up were Republican DA in West Georgia, a Democratic DA in Athens. Those were the, but we always knew. In the, the, the sort of subtext is it could be used against her. And now it looks like we already see there, there already is at least one complaint filed uh, even before this by Senate Republican leaders. But it's important. I'm glad you noted that, Bill, um, because so many people, legal analysts, people with no stake in this at all are saying don't jump to conclusions. Yeah. Of course, in politics, <laughs> that's what happens to you. Yeah, I also wanted to, as we listen, list the caveats to kind of make sure we we're, we put it in context. There also isn't necessarily anything illegal if they mm-hmm. did have a personal relationship. Right. Now, yes, there are people who say, did she possibly pay him more than he was worth or pay mm-hmm. him more than he um, his experience reflected? Um, there are allegations that the money was misspent. But again, those would have to be proven, but on their face, even if they are romantically involved, that in and of itself isn't necessarily necessarily breaking any rules or laws. So I just want to make sure we kind of cover that because we don't want to come across That's- as we are getting too far ahead of yeah, things. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Uh, we None of the attorneys who have commented in this believe that this has anything to do with whether the charges in the conspiracy, conspiracy case should move forward. One other quick thing, Patricia, before we move on. I was struck by the uh, a quote that you got, which you've already mentioned, from the person at that rally for Trump who said, all of a sudden, 91 charges, he'd lived, he'd had a career as a successful businessman, had been ethical, done everything legally, um, and all of a sudden these charges come forward. You can understand why a dyed-in-the-wool Trump fanatical supporter would feel exactly that way. Yeah, and the woman, uh, there was a woman sitting right next to her at, who chimed in, you're not fooling us. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of like you, the media, you, the Democrats, you, the liberals, you, the uh, justice system, um, you're not fooling us. We know who Trump is. And that's how they feel. They feel like they know him and they they love him. All right. Um, let's move on, Tia Mitchell. We, we know today is uh, is a big day for celebrating the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Junior, I remember when I moved to Atlanta, one of the first stops I made was to go to Ebenezer Baptist Church, the old Ebenezer, the original Ebenezer Baptist, and just to see that building 
and to see where Dr. King preached was so powerful. Um, of course, there's a new Ebenezer Baptist and the pastor of the church who inherited the pulpit from Dr. King uh, several generations later is Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock. And you wrote a wonderful profile of him after following him for a very long time. And I think people ought to go online and find it. But tell us a little bit about what you learned in covering him so closely for a period of, of months. Yeah, well, and of course, I cover Senator Warnock, Senator Ossoff, and our entire delegation in Washington. But back in September, during the Congressional Black Caucus's annual legislative conference, which is a week-long kind of mixture of events and parties and also, the Senate was in session. I got a chance to kind of almost embed with Senator Warnock to kind of see how he kind of juggles all his duties and responsibilities up close. Then we got a chance to kind of really talk and talk about his kids, talk about his personal life and his friendship. He had a close friend, attorney um, Byron from Birmingham, who was visiting with him. So I got to speak to someone who really knows Senator Warnock and has known him for decades, Byron Perkins. So the that started out in September. And for a lot of different reasons, um, the article came out this weekend. And um, but it the the delay um, helped because things like the Israel Hamas conflict bubbled up. And that was something that politically Senator Warnock had to navigate in the continued fallout from the public safety training center. And so um, again, it's about the Senator Reverend, which is something he calls himself. But to me, it's very kind of symbolic of the fact that he is currently holding down two full-time jobs in addition to having mm -hmm. two young kids yeah. <laughs> and trying to have a personal life. It didn't make the story, but he told me he actually does date even as a single guy. He is trying to have a personal life and date and all that stuff. So um, it was interesting. I hope people read it because it did try to give some insight into where Warnock, Warnock stands now that he isn't running for reelection the way he did for two years straight. Um, but he is still that rising star in the Democratic Party with a lot of eyes on he him. Really, first of all, Greg, it was worth the wait. The profile is wonderful. But we know, and this is not what, what Tia set out to, to do, is to elevate him in this way. But we do know there's talk about him being a candidate for president in 2026. Yeah, and Tia, he didn't quite answer you on that. Uh, 2028 yeah. beyond, right? <laughs> he didn't quite answer you that on that one, Tia, of course. Uh, he's going to play it coy. Uh, who knows what he ends up wanting to do? He has two young kids. But, you know, what struck me about your your profile, too, is exactly that, the two full-time jobs. I mean, when I when I, when I I talk to him and people around him, they tell me how, just the intense preparation to get ready for a Sunday sermon. I mean, we're not talking a couple minutes here on the plane. We're talking hours and hours of work. Uh, he is still, you know, the lead figure of the most famous church, one of the most famous churches on the planet, right? Uh, he, he has to be there for his, for his congregants and his constituents. It's, he's wearing two hats at all times. Patricia, I used to uh, love going to his services um, uh, because he's such a powerful speaker. And back, you know, 2012, 2014 and so on, you ask him all the time, everybody wants you to run. Are you going to run for governor? Are you going to run for Senate? And repeatedly, he would push it back until finally he couldn't resist. 
<laughs> yeah, he was uh, very politically active as a reverend. And I thought what Tia really did so well in that profile was showing the balance and the the journey he's had to make um, going from the pastor of the most famous black church in the country, uh, very progressive, very activist, uh, to now being a statewide official, a U.S. senator from Georgia who needs to balance a number of different constituencies. It's a real balancing act. And I think she got to that incredibly well. And then also, um, most of us who are around Warnock and even who see him a lot, um, he very rarely drops that veil. He is very formal. He is very appropriate at all times. And I felt like Tia had a chance to really get to see what he's like as a person, which I appreciated. And I was awfully glad that this came out uh, right before we celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, Greg Bluestein, thank you so much for staying, sticking with me here in the studio. We hold down the fort while you, Patricia, and you, Tia, will brave the cold and bring us reporting all day and tonight from the Iowa caucuses. Thank you all for uh, listening to the show uh, today. Remember, if you have a question, you can call the Politically Georgia hotline anytime at 404-526-2527. Leave us a question and we will do our best to answer it on our Friday show. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean Breeze tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.